Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Matthew Doherty. Matthew grew up in Ohio, taught elementary school in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, and is now completing his third and final year in the MFA fiction program at West Virginia University. His short stories have appeared or are forthcoming in Sonora Review, Salamander, and Crab Orchard Review all as contest winners, and have been praised by writers such as Molly Antipole and Lucy Curran. Matthew is a Teach for America alumnus, and he also enjoys writing and performing original songs under the artist name Matt Skirk. Matt's brought an excerpt to read today from a novel titled, I Swear the Grass is Greener Here. Thanks so much for having me, Jared. Um, yeah, so just a little cue to the reader, or I guess I should say listener. This kind of hops back and forth um, between when the protagonist, Cheryl, uh, was a teenager and then when she is a middle-aged mother. Um, so I'll just maybe pause a little extra beat just as a cue to know we're kind of switching time periods. Based on true events, as much as ghosts can be true, scabby ankles and a thick and loud August, 15 years old and 84, headlights gobbled up the night space. The Volkswagen rabbit slowed down. Deborah and I lowered our thumbs, wiped grime on our whitewashed, high-waisted jeans, and climbed in. Boy one was Thomas, a mustached smoker. Boy two was Greg, sharp-faced, earring in just one lobe, real John Wade-ish. We split a dime bag. Que pasa, said Thomas, like he was Cheech or Chong. Out the window, hot stalks of corn danced under the light of a sturgeon moon. Anybody want a shotgun kiss, said Deborah. She stuck her head up in the middle of the boys' seats, but instead of locking lips and exhaling, she noogied Thomas, the driver. Car swerved. I loved silly Deborah. Wish we'd stayed in touch after all these years. Greg opened the glove box but retrieved nothing. Then he shut it and reclined his seat against my knee. I was busy rubbing my right big toe into my left ankle nonstop. Two days ago, my kids came home from college to visit their long-lost mother. We played barefoot cornhole in my backyard next to the Neon Creek. Bugs feasted on my ankles. The next day I woke and itched and itched until they bled. And today I have embarked on this camping trip with no hydrocortisone. You think Professor Garrett would have included hydrocortisone in the wilderness survival syllabus, but no, he did not. I've enrolled in a wilderness survival course to fulfill an elective credit. Beats a public speaking class. I'm an empty nester and a divorcee, too young for birding and golf, and I have no one to bird and golf with. So what the hell? And also, would I ever really golf? The muddy trail cuts through brush so green and thick, there can't even be space for each single strand. Heavy rocks are secretly wobbly in the river we're about to cross. I have an extra pair of socks in my backpack, but still, I'd prefer to stay dry, to not slip. Professor Garrett leads with ease, waiting on the opposite bank, ready to help each of his students up and on their way. First, my younger peer, camo-clad Steve, train wrecks across the river. By some miracle, he makes it, refusing help from Professor Garrett. Back on solid ground, he shrugs off embarrassment, he pulls out a Slim Jim and watches his two other classmates. 
Like a ninja, I step, ready for the stones tremble, the rapids wet slap. My arms are the wings of a helicopter. Yeah, girl, shouts my encouraging female classmate from behind. You got this, lady. I have that unsteady feeling, and I'd love to itch my Achilles tendon right about now. But I'm almost there. I'm tripping my way to the opposite bank. I'm a car with three wheels and a burning engine. I'm no better than Slim Jim Steve. I'll bowl Professor Garrett over, but I'm surprised to find that my teacher's wiry frame is sturdy and strong. Professor Garrett's got me. He's pulling me by my elbow up onto the path. No more spitting water, no more tottering ground, but a hand lingers on my butt for one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Nobody sees because Steve's captivated by his Slim Jim and my yeah girl classmates crossing. Thomas, Greg, Deborah, and I decided it would be fun to cruise the lonely roads of Irving Mental Asylum. No gates around the 400-acre grounds. Trust me, I know because I was a 15-year-old girl whose mom sporadically frequented the place. Dad would call the police and mom would fight the uniformed men, tooth and nail, which is to say arm and leg. They'd drag her out by the extremities like a piece of screaming furniture. They wouldn't listen to her, only to dad. What about my babies, she'd shriek. My babies. Slam. I'd race back into my bedroom, to the window, and watch the neighborhood spectacle. I was one of her eight babies never allowed inside Irving. Dad gave mom my wildflowers that I picked. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Uh, And thanks for being here. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Yeah, uh, so... When I was reading it, I was I was really drawn to like the generational nature of it. Um, I mean, like this is obviously a story about um, the narrator, but it's also a story about her mother and um, like how that relationship seems to haunt the narrator, um, so to speak. I, am I reading this right? For sure, for sure. Um, and and you told me that this is loosely based on your mom's story, right? So is is. is she represented by the narrator or the narrator's mother? Uh, by the narrator. Yeah. So, so Cheryl was very much inspired uh, by my mom. So in a way it's like, there's almost three generations at play here, right? We have like, yeah. like the son writing a story about the mom and her relationship with her mom. So right. like, what made you want to tell this story? Uh, yeah. To provide a little bit of extra context. Um, yeah. As you mentioned, I'm working on a novel and you know, uh, when I first joined uh, the MFA program three years ago, I, I had this idea for a novel and it was to be told from the point of view of an adolescent teenage boy um, growing up in a small town in Southeast Ohio. Um, but I realized with the help of some of my program mates and professors that for whatever reason, like that just wasn't working. Um, so what I tried to do was I said, okay, well, well, I really like this town. I like this world I'm in. So what should I do? So then I thought, well, okay, what, what if I tried to zoom out a little and write from the perspectives of some of these characters who are on the periphery uh, of this kid? Um, so I said, what about his mom, Cheryl? Like, I don't really know much about her, but kind of just like through, it was kind of a natural bridge because I had pulled a lot of auto fiction from this teenage boy. So I kind of saw my mom, this Cheryl character. Um, so that's how it first kind of started. Um, you know, like Cheryl, my mom's mom died in a a psychiatric hospital when she was a kid. Um, and she was the, she was one of the only person in her family to attend college at 50 years old. Um, 
So I was very much just inspired by her story and super interested in her story. Um, and it's been really fun because, of course, I knew a lot of these stories just from growing up. But we've really um, talked a lot, whether just like over coffee or I'm like, Mom, let me buy you a cup of coffee or let's meet. She lives in Cleveland. I'm in Pittsburgh. So I'm like, hey, let's meet in Youngstown and talk for a few hours just about like your adolescence. Um, of course, when I when I think of her, I mean, I think of my mom. Um, so it's been really cool to just kind of hear um, about these crazy stories of, you know, hitchhiking um, with people they don't know. I'm sure she's going to kill me if she hears, hears me <laughs> talking about this. Um, but it started there and it's just been so interesting to just kind of go down the family history and learning more about, you know, your ancestry and, and that sort of thing. And it's been an absolute blast. I, I love that. I mean, I also pull a lot of seeds for stories from like, I mean, I think a lot of fiction writers pull seeds from like their own right. experiences, but like I, I do pull stuff from my family from time to time. And it, it is like motivation to ask questions that maybe you wouldn't ask normally. Right. Right. Like, Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, some, you know, it's been a very fun process. It's sometimes vulnerable, sometimes awkward, but you're right. You just got to ask those questions. Um, because you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a baby boomer, you know, woman, obviously. So I, you know, you need to ask those questions if you want to try to write those characters in a genuine, you know, right. manner. So do you find that often you are starting, like when you, when you start a piece of fiction, are you often starting with like something from real life, like a seed from real life and then fictionalizing it from there? Yeah, I would say it varies. Um, but, you know, probably seven times out of 10, I, I start with, something from from real life just like a, a liftoff I, I don't know what it is I, maybe it just gives me security or a foundation um but pretty quickly I think I'm jumping away from that um I don't know just to if nothing else maybe to find more trouble and you know we, we love those words conflict tension that sort of thing um so Cheryl gets in more trouble than my you know my mom ever did um and sometimes that can get you in trouble and, you know, sometimes you can piss people off, but, you know, you have to, you have to, of course, emphasize that, you know, please, you know, be patient with me. Remember, this is just a nugget and it's fiction and, and, and we're starting from there. Um, but yeah, I often do start from something in real life. It is, that, that is something that I think about too. I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for nonfiction writers who are able to just like put themselves out there in the way that they do. Um, I don't think I have quite that much courage. So, you know, uh, but it is a little nerve wracking to when there are like some kind of real life elements from your own family or friends that are in the story. Um, I do find it like nerve wracking. In the end, it is fiction, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I often find that like that nugget that I start with, that seed is unrecognizable by the end of it. Right. I, I totally agree. And I think at the end of the day, things I try to emphasize, I mean, so I'll just say real quickly, like in the novel, there's three characters and, and one is, is kind of a stay-at-home stay mom who's going back to school after divorce. And then my, uh, the other character is a small town police officer and my dad was a police officer. Um, so, you know, I think at the end of the day, if you write the characters in a way that, um, you know, hopefully aren't one dimensional and are nuanced. Um, that will kind of speak for itself. Um, and that's always the goal, right? To write well-rounded characters. And I think, I think as long as you keep that in mind and say, you know, I'm approaching this character from a place of care, hopefully, you know, hopefully crossing my fingers, my mom or, you know, my mom or dad or, or whoever that might be, um, 
we'll just appreciate it and know that that it's fiction. Right. Um, so you, you also are a musician that goes by the stage name Matt Skirk. Skirk being a variation of your mother's maiden name. So is yes. it safe to say your mother's been a bit a pretty big influence on you as a yeah <laughs> Yeah, I would say so, um, for sure. She definitely spurred a lot of creativity when I was a kid. Like, um, yeah, I mean, when I was young, I, I would write a lot of, like, fantasy novels um, on the old, like, we had, like, a really old, like, Windows 95, like, white boxy computer and I'd be pecking away at the keyboards with Enya on the CD player. I, I was a pretty weird <laughs> kid. Um, but, but yeah, like she'd be the one who would always looking forward to the next installment of the, um, you know, of the cheesy fantasy novel. Um, and same goes, I mean, she was always very musical. There was always like James Taylor playing in the background or, or some, some singer songwriter like that. So I really love kind of the old seventies and eighties music. Um, and she was the one that kind of pushed for, eventually I got guitar lessons when I was like in high school because um, I really wanted to try and she pushed for that too. So definitely I owe a lot to her. So, it, and it really has been a privilege uh, just to, like we were talking about with, with this character, Cheryl, to just kind of write about not only her, but her mom. Um, and I'm just honored to do it. And so grateful that she's been helping me out. So it sounds like you were writing both music and fiction pretty early. Do you remember which came first? Definitely fiction. So, uh, yeah, I was just, I loved writing fiction when I was a kid. Um, and then songs didn't really come till I guess I, I picked up the guitar like early high school, but I really didn't start writing songs till like college. Um, and it's funny, I've, I've never really been able to do both at the same time. Like it's either been a really long spurt of stories um, and then... I would stop writing stories like, like, for example, I, I guess I'm already kind of taking that back because maybe in college it was a little bit of both, but right after I graduated from college, I moved to Texas where I was elementary school teacher for two years. And then I, I worked for that school system and communications. But anyways, during those four years, two of them, I lived in Austin, Texas, where I tried to do a lot of music stuff because it's a great music city. So I, I wrote a couple albums and recorded them in my closet and stuff. Um, but during that time, and I really didn't write anything. Um, and it was funny, my fiance at the time was like, you want to apply to MFA programs? Like, you never write stories. Like, all you do is music. And I'm like, I swear, like, I, if I'm into it, I, I'll be back to that. Um, and then since I've done my MFA, I've not written a song since we moved from Texas. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, and I, I wish I knew why that was the case. Um, maybe at some point I'll figure out how to do both at the same time, but I have I've never been able to. Well, how are the processes similar or different between like writing a song and writing a piece of prose? Yeah. Um, so I think when, in terms of writing songs, to me, they feel more, um, this is kind of a ridiculous metaphor, but they feel more like eating like candy. Like you just ate like a piece of Sour Patch Kids or something like it's very quick and it's like a rush. Um, I typically, if I were to write a song in my, in my experience, I would sit down and probably write at least most of it all in one sitting. Like typically, you know, you're, you're strumming something on the guitar and you're like, Oh man, I got a chorus or, Oh, that's the hook. And, you, and you're really excited about it and you want to go grab another Sour Patch Kid and keep going. Um, whereas I think short stories, for me, you know, once again, um, it's, it's a really long process. It's just, there's a ton, not to say that there's not effort put into writing songs, but I, I put so much more time. It's, it's, a, it's more of a grind with the short story. So, so my metaphor here is that it's more of like a, a nice piece of salmon and some broccoli or something that's going to sustain you a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and it feels so 
it feels really great once you actually finish the story. Um, and unlike writing songs where it's kind of like, ooh, I think I got that initial hook. Oftentimes, I won't know what the essence of the story is until I'm on like draft number two or until I've been working on it for weeks or or sometimes it'll be, I mean, gosh, I mean, sometimes I'll put a half of the story away and I won't work on it for a year and then I'll come back to it and realize, oh, there's only one good thing about this. I'm going to pull that out and put it into something else. Um, you know, I've heard short story writers, some of them say that they often write the first draft like all in one sitting. And that's not, that has not been my experience either. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it's been your experience. Yeah. Like um, often I find that the idea that I have originally you know, it, it may be that I write the entire first draft over, you know, a week or so and realize that, you know, the beginning is actually the end and I have to, you know, essentially start over or. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And I'll give you an example is like, even with, you know, we're talking about auto fiction, auto fiction, and then going off to discover whatever the story might be. I mean, you know, I, the whole camp, well, we didn't really get into it, but the beginning of the story, um, you know, she goes off to a camping trip to fulfill an elective credit. Um, and that was just, that was just made up. That was actually a different short story in which, you know, I had gone on a camping trip trip when I was in school and I was like, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if Cheryl goes on this? Um, so, you know, that was a different short story that I ended up throwing into this one, throwing in the pot and mixing together and see what happens. But I'm trying to think about other, you know, and then in terms of with music and short stories, I mean, the other thing is just like the nuts and bolts of it. Um, songs are just so connected to music too. Like, I, you know, I've tried to, I've tried to pull lines from short stories thinking like, Oh, you know, that's a good line. But then when you try to attach it to, you know, notes and chords and all that stuff, it's like, Whoa, that's, that's like, sounds like it's trying way too hard. Um, but yeah, like I said, maybe someday I'll be able to synthesize the two a little better. Yeah. So it sounds like when you write, um, when you're writing songs, you're thinking of like the melody and the lyrics, like at the same time. Yeah. And, and typically pretty much all the songs I've written start with the music and I'll, I just love the guitar. So I'll just find something on the guitar and then um, I'll find a, a melody that I want to sing, but it'll just be gibberish and nonsense and that sort of thing. So in that sense, you know, I mean, they do both come from like, in my mind, if there's one kind of bow I can tie around is that they both come from kind of like the subconscious of exploring and seeing what, what comes out of that exploring and drifting around. Um, Cause that, you know, you never know what pops in your head when you're writing a song and same goes for a story. And I find that a lot of young writers are really uncomfortable with that idea um, of, yeah. of kind of being going into a story a little blind really. And being like, like knowing that uh, you, you don't know what it's right. going to be at the end. And like you, it, it is an act of discovery and trusting in the revision process um, is really for important. Sure. Yeah, I completely agree. And obviously everyone's got their own process, but for me at least, I'm a huge proponent of that. Like one of my favorite writers is Marisha Pessel. Um, and she's all about that, right? I mean, if you're not, if you're not surprising yourself as a writer, um, then I don't think you're doing your story like a full service of what it could be um, for sure. So I definitely subscribe to that belief as well. Well, um, you're originally from Ohio, and now you go to school at the University of West Virginia, and you told me that you often write about the Midwest, Appalachia, and the space between them. So what, what did you mean by that? Oh, gosh, did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, 
Well, I mean, really just the Midwest and Appalachia are the two places that have shaped who I am. Um, you know, we've been talking about auto fiction um, and, you know, I think setting definitely fits into this conversation. So, you know, I grew up um, outside of Cleveland um, in kind of just like a, a working class suburb. My, like I said, my dad was a police officer. Mom stayed at home. Um, but for college, I went down to Ohio University in Athens. Um, and Ohio is kind of divided. I mean, that that southeast you know quadrant is is very much like part of Appalachia. Um, Athens is kind of a college bubble. Um, but I was fortunate to be able to. I, I went and taught like in Richmond at, at an elementary school in in a town about 20 minutes outside of Athens in Albany. And then I also volunteered a lot at Wayne National Forest. So it was just really cool to, to get out into some of the more communities and just kind of escape that like college bubble. Um, you know, my mom's dad was a coal miner in a small town in uh, rural Pennsylvania too. So we'd, you know, go visit family there. Um, and then of course, yeah, now I go, I go to West Virginia University. So I just, I've been very privilege to, to be able to live in Appalachia now a little bit more. Um, so, so yeah. And then I'm really interested because, you know, those are the two settings and of course they're different and just kind of seeing, um, this space in between. Um, so like right now, actually, I, I, I don't live in Morgantown, West Virginia. Uh, my fiance is a print, uh, system principal in, um, Pittsburgh. So I've been commuting. Um, but, but even, you know, Pittsburgh, I've, I've heard it, people say it's, it's the gateway to the Midwest. But then I've also heard people say it's the Paris of Appalachia. So just kind of like talking about that, that space and what that means. And even this town that I'm working on with this novel, I, I'm setting in a fictional town called Tree, Ohio. Um, even just quite literally in terms of geography, I'm kind of putting it smack dab right in that southeast spot in Ohio, kind of like 30 minutes southeast of Columbus, where, you know, Columbus, I consider more of like a Midwestern city. Um, but pretty quickly as you drive down Route 33, you know, it kind of turns into more of an Appalachian um, place, whether geography or just political climate, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm very interested in that. I'm hoping that, you know, maybe through my writing, I can kind of figure out, you know, what, what I mean by that space in between them. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just very interested in that. And they're, they've just been formative settings for me. So I definitely yeah. want And uh, you're, you're a pretty outdoorsy person, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine am. Appalachia is a good place to to write if you love the outdoors. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's just amazing. Like, I, I mean, I always loved being outside. I mean, when I think of childhood, I think of like where I grew up, we had some woods close by, like from our backyard. So we would always be in the woods. But it wasn't until I got down to like Athens and Appalachia. And then in West Virginia has incredible wilderness. Um, it's just beautiful. I mean, the soft, soft rolling hills. Um it's, it's just amazing. And it's, I don't know, it's all, it's almost like transcends language for me. I, I just feel like when I'm there, it's like the, the beauty of it. It's just, it feels like it's, it's just part of your soul or something. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, we've talked about family as inspiration for stories, but, um, do you, do you get a lot of inspiration from the outdoors? Do you find that like being out hiking or something that you get ideas for stories more yeah, often or less often? I mean, or That's a good question. I don't really like, I'm, I'm thinking of like something like, um, like, like, like Walden or, or something like that. Like typically I, maybe when I was younger, I would, I would write these like odes to nature, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, we all went through our Walt Whitman phase. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Gotta love Walter. Um, 
but but now it's more just like I I, I guess it's I still do that, but it's in a, and it's in a different way. You know, I find my characters like for example in this novel I'm working on a lot of the you know scenes or tension or what have you take place on some of these lonely back beautiful back roads. Like like for example when I was in school or now my sister lives in Athens, so I'm often back in Athens. Um, you know, from Morgantown to Athens or what have you. I just love driving around like the, the back roads and stuff. Um, so a lot of my characters are, are doing that for one reason or another. And then they stop on the side of the road because they see something. Um, so even if it's not like, you know, it's like subconsciously, I think I'm always going back to nature, but it's more that, you know, some people might differentiate that all oh, this well here it happens at your setting but this is the plot whereas i think it, they're almost just kind of connected i mean you can't have one without the other right um well i mean it sounds like place is super important to you in your writing and like For the sure. fact that you go to west virginia made me think of uh one of my favorite appalachian writers Brees dj pancake have, have you read him um is it any is there any relation to um and pancake i don't know the answer to that that's a good question i haven't read him but i know and pancake teaches at West Virginia. She's not part really? of the faculty at the MFA program, but she's often teaches workshops. I'm going to have to. You should look up Brees DJ Pancake. He was okay. uh, really great at getting West Virginia on the page. Um, are there, are there any Appalachian writers that, that you really love? Yeah. I, mean, I just read um, a short story collection called actually it was recommended to me by a fellow, uh, fellow MFA person here. Um, Jonathan Corcoran, uh, the, the rope swing. Um, is really good. Um, I mean, I have to give a shout out to my professor, uh, Glenn Taylor, who's who teaches at WVU, but is originally from Huntington. His three novels, um, The Ballad of Trenchmouth, Taggart, it's quite the title. Um, and Hanging at Cinder Bottom is probably my favorite. It's about like a boomtown, a cold boomtown in like the 20s. Um, he's great. I'm trying to think who else. Um, Crystal Wilkinson came by. She teaches at Kentucky and she blew me away with some of her stories. Um, those would be three names right off the bat that, but I mean, there's so many, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very rich area for, for literature for sure. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about the program a little bit. Um, for sure. the MFA program at West Virginia is a three year fully funded program. According to their website, all students teach composition with opportunities to teach creative writing in the third year. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Um, so you came in with teaching experience already, as you mentioned. Um, can you tell us about like your teaching experience? Um, sure. You were in Teach for America, right? Yes, I was. So yeah, I did, I did TFA, Teach for America, for two years in Texas. And then shortly afterwards, I came to WVU um, and I taught. So it's a 2-2 teaching load. So, so two courses of like composition um, in fall and then two in spring. Um, I mean, I found, I don't know, I taught fourth grade and it was a pretty intensive school. And like, I swear, I think it took like, I, it took like 10 years off my life, but at the same, I, I also want to say that I love the kids and I love my experience, but it was a very hard job. Um, and I think most teachers w- would agree with that teaching elementary school. So the transition from teaching elementary school to teaching college, I mean, I would have to say, I think it was just in terms of total time, it, it, I had a lot of time still um, to write. Um, I mean, I taught like, depending on the semester, you know, it was either Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday. And the other days, I mostly was able to just focus on writing. Um, but at the same time, I, I have heard that, w, you know, the 2-2 is kind of a heavier, on the heavy side in terms of the teaching load for an MFA program. 
Um, yeah, it seems like um, often it's either 1-1 one, one or 2-2. Or two, two. Um, right. I've seen a few that are 2-1. So essentially that means like a 1-1 one, one teaching load, you just teach one course in the fall, one course in the spring. But uh, my, my um, program is also 2-2. Two, two, so I'm teaching okay. two courses in the fall and two courses in the spring. Um, and it, it is a lot of work. I mean, uh, I mean, I think you can balance yeah. it, but um, still find that writing time. But did you find that like having teaching experience helped you to be able to like better balance that? I think I did. I think I was very fortunate, lucky to have just come from that. I mean, I, even in my classes, like as much as, you know, I mean, fourth graders were talking like 10 year olds, but even so I would really incorporate a lot of like the learning techniques and lessons into the classes, like a lot of get up out of your seat and let's, you know, put post-its on the wall or like I did like a paper airplane activity where they send like subjects and predicates and that sort of thing. Um, or even just, I taught writing. So, I mean, even just like working on the portfolio and, and that sort of stuff, um, it did translate and it really helped. Um, so does, uh, does West Virginia tend to allow some flexibility in like what you all teach in those classes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, in my personal experience, I, I, think very highly of the people who run the, the undergraduate writing program. And they definitely, um, you know, are proponents of you doing what you want to do. I mean, of course there's, there are those like guideposts that you have to hit, but in terms of picking out works that your students are going to read or activities and that sort of thing, um, they are totally open for whatever That's you're great. interested in. Yeah. And you talked about like the two, two course load can be a little bit much for some people, perhaps. I mean, I, I have heard people say that that's, um, on the heavier side for MFA programs, but, right. um, the stipend at West Virginia is listed as $16,750 per year, which I'm assuming in Morgantown, West Virginia goes pretty far, right? It does. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things when I was looking at MFA programs was cost of living, like where you're moving to. Um, and of course, you know, West Virginia has a pretty low cost of living, so it absolutely does. Um, and in the program too, I mean, I don't want to say that everyone gets this, but there is a, certainly the possibility that you can do something over the summer um, to even up that funding. Cause that's, yeah, that's like your nine month. Um, and I was fortunate to, so actually I should mention that I, I currently don't teach. I taught my first year and then instead of teaching, I switched over to do a grant um, grants management like position in the research office. So I work with, like the professors at the university and help them with their grants and copy editing and submitting them. And even this is going to sound ridiculous, but even budgets, um, I, I do some of the math stuff, which I, I'm surprised they let me do that. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so there is a lot of, you know, there are cool opportunities, whether to do over the summer or even a few different alternate things to, um, you know, teaching technical writing or then, yeah, of course, in the third year, you get to teach creative writing, which sounds super cool. So if you choose to do one of those alternate options, are you still receiving the same tuition remission and stipend and all that? Yeah, it's basically the same. Um, there might be a difference of a few dollars just because mm -hmm. it's technically not in the English department anymore. But I mean, it's essentially the same. Um, yeah, it, 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 there's definitely some really cool opportunities um, that you can take advantage of at WVU. Well, besides uh, coming in with some teaching experience, you also came in with some publishing experience. Um, having won the writing contest with Crab Orchard Review before starting at West Virginia, 
And then you went on to win two more short fiction contests, one with Salamander and one with Sonora Review. So clearly you've figured out something that's eluding <laughs> the rest of us. So what's the what's the secret to winning these writing um, contests? If I told you, then I'd have to kill you. No, no I'm just kidding. I literally don't have a clue. Um, I'm very, very lucky and just floored to have been able to win a couple of those. Um, Gosh, I mean, I, I, it's just surreal. Like when, it, when I found out more than anything, maybe because with the judges of the ones in Salamander and Sonora review, um, Molly Antipole and Lucy Corinne, I, I had been familiar with some of their work. Um, so it was just like, so they were almost like celebrities or something, you know, it was just, it was so cool for them not only to have chosen, but to have written a little blurb about it and stuff, um, was just amazing. I'm so grateful. Um, Gosh, I wish I knew the answer. I mean, I mean, maybe just do it like entering a lot of contests, which of course can be tough. I don't, I don't know how those first two, because because with the last one with Sonora, I have once I joined the MFA program, I learned a lot more about lit journals and that sort of thing. But with the first two, it was just such a crapshoot. Um, I mean, I, I swear, I think some of it too is just like with lit journals. There's so many readers, and and I'm guilty of this too, being on Cheat River Review here at WVU. But you know, I mean, a reader comes across your story. And it, it depends on maybe even just like what mood they're in or, if, or if those first couple lines grab them and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I would probably just say, you know, if you can, um, submit a lot, um, you know, like I said, sometimes those submission fees for contests can get pricey. So I, I would probably, the only reason I justified is just any, maybe from the prizes, a little bit of prize money from the other contests. I'll say, okay, I'll use a little bit of that to submit to a couple others, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I just, it's very, very grateful to have, for those stories to have found a home. Yeah, it's great. It's exciting. Um, and so like, can you like clearly point to anything in your writing or like, uh, your like submitting process that's changed since you started the program? Oh, good question. Mm. In terms of my actual like writing style or process, I would have to think about that more than anything. I think I mentioned this in the beginning, but like when I first came into the program, I had in my head, like, I'm going to write this like coming of age, what do they call it? The buildings Roman story or whatever, you know, like, um, and I turned in a few of those submissions in the workshops and, um, you know, they were just kind of like, for lack of better terms, they were just kind of flat. Um, maybe because I was using too much auto fiction and I wasn't able to kind of like zoom out of my own head. Um, so it's been really cool to be pushed by my professors to be like, like, for example, Cheryl, that was just kind of on a whim. Um, I was like, well, you know what, I'll try her and I'll turn and I'll bring in 10 pages in the workshop. And then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, Matt, this is way better than that other stuff from that <laughs> teenage boy. You should keep going with, with, with her or even with this um, in the Sonora review, like that was totally random um, from my professor, uh, Glenn Taylor, he has these like really random assignments where he's like, you know, write a story about, you know, someone has a, a wooden leg or, or, you know, just some of these ridiculous prompts or, or some ridiculous first line. And, and that just came from there, like, kind of like, oh, no, I got to do this assignment for workshop. I better squeeze something out. So I guess just kind of like never underestimate like just something random that happens. You never know when you're going to write something good and when you're going to write something that falls flat. And I wonder if there's, you know, like that's, if it's possible to cultivate those scenarios, right? Like finding little ways to like push yourself out of your comfort zone, um, finding yeah. random things to write about. 
um, instead sure. of waiting for like some specific inspiration. I, I could not agree more. I can't remember who said it. It was maybe like Annie Prue or someone else. Um, but yeah, if you're not writing something that is making you uncomfortable, you probably shouldn't be writing it. Um, so just to embrace discomfort, I think is super important. In the workshops at, at West Virginia, I mean, you won those contests on sh- pieces of short fiction, but you've been working on a novel. So what's workshop like with a novel? Yeah, I mean, it's a little more challenging just in the sense that when you workshop a story, you know, all your readers are able to see the beginning and the end and judge it and talk about it in its entirety. Um, whereas with the novel, oftentimes people will say like, well, it's hard for me to critique this because I don't know what's going to happen next and that sort of thing. Um, and it is really hard. Like, I, I don't blame people for saying that because I feel the same way when I'm, you know, um, but, but that can be challenging just because they, they're not able to see the whole thing. Um, so I think you just kind of have to view it a little differently, kind of like, like I was mentioning. I think I was fortunate because when I came in, it was, you know, obviously very early and I was still just exploring this world I wanted to write about. So when I kind of came in, my mindset was more just like, hey, can you let me know if like this character's voice is good? Like, are you interested in this character's voice? Um, You know, would you continue more than anything else? Like, do I have your interest or should I see who else is kind of standing around the periphery of this world and try them? And so for a while, it was more about just like, hey, let's see who else might be in this town that you want to write about um, and what's really going on um, in this town. So when you have those questions, um, do you ask the your classmates before workshop starts, like at the beginning of the workshop, or are these questions you're asking at the end? It depends on the professor. Like, and, and really, I should mention like all the professors that I've been with in the fiction and poetry um, genres have been amazing. But, but some of them are more, they kind of abandon the whole like Iowa style where it's like, yeah, what do you want to get out of this? Even maybe in your submission, the first like half page is like, write what you want us to focus on. Um, others are a little more like, well, no, why don't you take a back seat? Let's just, we don't want to be influenced by that. We just want to see the work. And I think both styles work. Um, but for my situation, I guess it was quite helpful to just kind of let my classmates know what was on my mind and what I really need help with. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, earlier the cheat river review at west virginia i was curious um maybe if you could tell us about that and any other like opportunities at west virginia outside of the workshops for sure yeah i mean i find you know in my experience i find the program to be very like communal there's a lot going on a lot of the um writers and the starts from the professors on down often will want to get together you know whatever so yeah there's a lot lot going on um cheat river reviews is our lit journal where we're a modest little journal but but we do good work and we take pride um in what we publish um so i definitely um you know want to give that shout out for sure um so yeah you definitely have that opportunity to work on on that journal um the Appalachian Prison Book Project is run uh, by a professor there named Katie Ryan. Uh, it's one of my regrets that I haven't been more involved in that. Um, I was able, fortunate to take her class, though, and kind of get trained a little bit on that. Um, but essentially, it's your uh, incarcerated people from Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Carolinas, I think, um, write you for books, and then you send books to them. And with a little note saying, hey, you know, if they want a biography of Bruce Springsteen, Sorry, we didn't have that in the inventory, but we wanted to give you one on 
you know, whatever the Rolling Stones or, or something. <laughs> um, so that's a really cool project that I definitely know um, students get involved with. Um, some are even able to actually go to prisons and teach like inside out courses there, which is really, oh, cool. really cool experience. Um, once again, which wish I would have been more involved in that. And then, yeah, like we have, um, there's readings. I mean, now in, in the light of COVID, that's kind of, kind of stopped. Um, yeah. But beforehand, it was very vibrant in terms of readings and even like playing music and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, this is all great information, I think, for anyone that's like considering applying to West Virginia. I'm curious now that you're um, a ways through the program, like how have, how has the reality of the MFA program um, matched up with maybe the expectations you had before going there? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I think the number one thing that comes to mind is maybe just, I did not know the state of the teaching market in terms of jobs. Like, so when I first applied for MFAs, I was kind of more under the impression like, Hey, you know, if I go get my MFA, I can teach, I can get a tenure track position at a university and, and, you know, and, and, you know, maybe agents come to the MFA programs and, 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 you know, that, and maybe that's the case other places. Um, but you know, the state of, of teaching at the college level right now is, is kind of abysmal. Um, yeah. and so that's kind of scary, you know, like that first year, like kind of coming in with the expectations of like, okay, well, I'm going to get my MFA and then kind of do like a career change and teach at the college level. Not to say that you can't, of course. And of course there's like adjunct positions, but you know, those are, those are kind of tough tough gigs, even one to get or two. I mean, at, you know, kind of all across the country, we've seen that adjuncts don't make a lot of money and sometimes their, their benefits can be really rough. Um, yeah. So that was kind of a wake up call a bit just in terms of, Oh no, what am I going to do after this program? Yeah. I think that's a pretty common misconception. I mean, cause yeah. the MFA is a terminal degree. Um, so um, technically to teach creative writing, that's, that's all you need um, to get a position at a college or university, but these positions are nearly non-existent these right. days. So um, it's not enough to just get an MFA. You also have to publish quite a bit. That um, book. Yeah, exactly. So before we wrap up, I'm curious if you have any advice for people who are considering applying to MFA programs. I know you said that the application process was a crazy time for you. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. so any advice for applicants or people that are just considering like the MFA yeah. path? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think we often hear this, but it's worth repeating. Like, I don't know how I would have done it if it wasn't like a fully funded program. So I know there's a lot of programs out there where you may have to like finance it or it's only partially funded. Um, because you even in a fully funded program, you, you know, it's still not um, pie in the sky by any means. I, I would certainly apply to, to fully funded programs um, myself. Um, I'm trying to think of other things. I mean, I personally, some people would subscribe to a different view, but I was able, I went out into the working world for a few years and I'm very glad that I did that. Like I, I was considering applying to MFA right out of undergrad. Um, but I think I just needed to get out of academia for a little while. Um, and if nothing else, I mean, I mean, on one hand for me, once again, just speaking from my experience, I feel like I have a lot more perspective and just more to write about um, going out and, working just a normal nine to five job. And then two, I think like, you know, we mentioned the job prospects and that sort of thing. It's probably, I find it good to have a little bit more experience doing whatever, you know, you might have done 
And, and it's been really cool. I mean, in the MFA program, there's like, we have like someone who was like an engineer um, that worked for a car company. Um, and now he's in the MFA program. It's just really neat um, to hear about where all these people are coming from and whether region or just job wise and all that stuff. I mean, I, I love talking to writers in general because I find that they, you know, they're just, they tend to be interesting people, but yeah. I completely agree. Like the, in the, these MFA programs, the diversity of backgrounds and experiences can be really interesting, really inspiring. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. I mean, I, I, it's been great talking to thank you. Thank you for and, having me. Um, I can't wait to see the next fiction contest win come around here. <laughs> that might be a while. So I wouldn't hold your breath, but thank you, Jared. I appreciate it. <laughs>